I know we have a lot of Georgia State students here. Mm -hmm. And we have four Georgia Tech students. Oh, there's more for Georgia Tech. I'm sorry. Every, I just met three and I was kidding them. Okay, so let me just kind of bring that together for you. Okay, then I'll move on. I went to Georgia State. I met my wife at Georgia Tech. And none of my kids went to either. So anyway, so, so I love Georgia State, love Georgia Tech. I was a journalism major at Georgia State. I'm a words person. Any journalism majors? Yeah, yeah. Back then... I don't even tell you how awful it was. So good. Be glad you're not back then in that situation. Um, Georgia Tech, Sanders, like the math and science person. And I met her at, this is so cliche, so don't laugh. I went to a Bible study, kind of like this, at Georgia Tech. And the speaker canceled. And they asked me at the last minute. And I got talked into going. I didn't want to go. I had something else to do. In fact, I was teaching a high school Bible study. And I told the guy, Gary, I said, I can't go to Georgia Tech. I'm teaching a Bible study in a home every Monday night to high school students. Did I ask you about, do you remember? Yeah, we did that. So, and he, um, he taught me to it. So I actually, it was, this was crazy. I actually did two Bible studies in the same night. I did the high school and then he ran me over to Georgia Tech. And there I met three girls. They were all had, they all had blonde hair. Everybody else was guy. And then the next day he called me and said, did you meet Sandra Walker? I'm like, I met three girls. They all had blonde hair. I have no idea. He said, well, you should ask her out. I said, I'm not going to do that. That's so creepy. Hey, I'm Andy. I'm the Bible study teacher. Would you like to go out? I have no idea who you are, but I, I mean, that's just creepy. I'm like, no, I know preachers who do weird stuff. I'm not doing that. So <laughs> I promise I'm not making this up. In fact, she was going to come here tonight. Um, she, we had our small group and she was hosting. So she, um, so this guy, Gary, who's still a good friend of ours, he gave me her number. He said, do you need to call her? I said, I'm not going to call her. That's so weird. I don't even know who she is. There were, you know, it was quick and there's a lot of people. So he stayed on me, stayed on me. So finally, to get him off my case, I, he, he said, I just think you should meet. So I called her. I waited so long. She had left that dorm. This was back before. These didn't even exist. I know. The dinosaurs had just gone off the face of the earth, and then we didn't have these yet. And so I called like the... You've seen these in movies. That's what we'd use. Okay. And I called her, and somebody answered and said, oh, she didn't live here anymore. So she was in... I waited so long, she changed dorms. So I gave up. Not God's will. God closed the door. And then Gary said, hey, did you call her? I said, I called her. She didn't even live there anymore. He got her new dorm number. I'm not making this up. This is no exaggeration. So finally, I called her. We went out on a date. We never stopped dating. We got married. We've been married for 30 years. So let's give it up for Gary Niebuhr. Okay, yes. He was the tennis coach at Georgia Tech. Okay. So real quick, and I'm going to jump into this. Um, we got a clock, and I'm going to try to be faithful so you guys can get to your small groups. So just real quick, how many of you ever at some point in your life in Sunday school, a camp, a, a you know, student venture thing, something in high school, elementary school with your parents, how many of you ever made any kind of step toward God or profession of faith or you prayed a sinner's prayer or you just had some moment where you kind of took a step toward God or with God? Yeah, I mean, yeah, most of us. And um, if you didn't, that's fine. In fact, in some cases, it's almost better if you didn't because as we get older, Clearly, our understanding of God and Christianity and faith in the Bible changes over time, which, which it should. It matures. And so what happens, and you've already experienced this, so this is why I wanted to talk about it. When you leave high school and when you leave home, you bring whatever your faith was with you. And when you come into college, especially in university setting or graduate school setting, what seems so relevant in elementary school and maybe even through high school doesn't seem quite as relevant. It's not that you quit believing it. It just... It just doesn't seem as relevant. I mean, it's, it may or may not still be true, but it used to matter because we used to go to church all the time as a family, and now you're 
You know, it just didn't seem to matter as much. And I'll just say this for you because you'd feel weird saying this in a church, even though it doesn't look like a church. Um, when you get to this season that you're in, that's this most fabulous season of all, Christianity in many instances becomes really inconvenient. Yeah, some of you got that and you laugh. It's like, it really is because he's just so cute and it, this is inconvenient, okay? And, and it's not that you quit believing, right? It's not like you had some intellectual breakthrough that I just don't believe there's a God and I believe it's all natural selection. It's just that the real world and your faith collide and it just becomes inconvenient. And some of you, this is kind of the Debbie Downer moment. I don't even know where that came from. This, this moment where um, for some of you, you are going to walk away from your faith not because of some intellectual thing. You're going to walk away because it's inconvenient. It just doesn't work with your lifestyle. It doesn't work with the decisions you make. And I'm so sorry that you're going to do that. In fact, some of you have already done that. You're just here for the food or you're, you, you did that two or three years ago and you kind of gotten beat up a little bit by life and now you're back thinking, I don't know if I can do this again, but I, I got to do something different. But some of you, you know, a percentage of you will leave your faith because it's just hard to be a Christian in this season of your life. Um, and I can't do anything about that. That's your decision. I don't want you to. I, I think you'll regret that later, but I don't know your future, and that's a decision you'll have to make. But what I don't want you to do, and what I want to talk about for a few minutes is, I don't want any of you to walk away from faith because you don't think there's anything to it. It's one thing if it gets in the way of how you want to live your life. It's another thing if you come to the conclusion, well, the Bible was written by men and it's full of mistakes and, you know, God was slaughtered all the people in the Old Testament and so there's, that doesn't make any sense and we don't know if anything about Jesus was true and if Genesis isn't true, Leviticus is weird revelation. It's just cultic and so I just, I'm just done with it and I'm going to go, you know, do something else or find some other religion or I'm going to make up. I'm going to have my own faith. I'm going to have my own belief. I'm going to have my own truth. Here's what I want to try to keep you from doing. If you decide not to follow Jesus, oh, I hate that, but that's your decision. But I don't want any of you to walk away from faith because somebody convinces you there's nothing to it. So for the next 25 minutes, I'm going to do my best to anchor your faith in something that's so real and that's so um, explorable and is so identifiable and is so intellectual and so academic that again, if you choose, you know what, I'm ditching my faith, I'm going to put it on hold, I'm going to put it on the back burner, I'm just not going to do that anymore because I don't want to, that's one thing. But I hope to plant a seed tonight so that if you do that, if you walk away from faith because it's inconvenient, and then 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, life kind of beats you up, you've been through some stuff, and it's like this isn't working, and you decide to come back, I want to make sure you know there is something real for you to come back to. But to do that... I've got to sort of dislodge some of your high school thinking about the Bible and Jesus and some of your Sunday school thinking about the Bible and Jesus and maybe some of even what you're wrestling with now about the Bible and Jesus and kind of give you a, an adult version of faith. And I'll be honest, every time I talk about this, people get so frustrated with me. So if you get frustrated, that's okay. But I am so confident in what I'm going to talk about and I care about you so much. If you're going to walk away because it's inconvenient, but you cannot walk away because there's nothing to it. So nine years ago, nine years ago, I'm watching a YouTube video of a guy named Sam Harris. Anybody know who Sam Harris is? 
Nobody, three, okay. Sam Harris is a famous atheist. He's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's these four famous atheists that after 9-11 wrote books and articles that said all religion is bad, all religion is terrible, nobody should have any religion. They wrote against Islam, against Christianity, and all religion is bad. Well, the Christians, they came unglued because Sam Harris you know, came after the Christians. So then he wrote um, another book um, called A Letter to a Christian Nation. It's about 90 pages long where he just takes Christianity, he just dismantles Christianity. So before I, I ended up reading his books, both his uh, Reason End of Faith and uh, Letter to a Christian Nation, and you know everybody's all the atheist books, it was kind of fun. And but before I read their books, I saw this video, and Sam Harris is on a university in a university, and he is just dismantling Christianity. I mean, he is just taking it apart, and the crowd is going wild. Every time he'd make a point, they would just cheer. And he's talking about the Old Testament and the Old Testament God and all the violence and all the murder, and they burned children, and they were so archaic, and the Bible has so many contradictions. He's going on and on and on and on. And as I watched this about nine years ago, I thought to myself, Oh no. Sam Harris shares an assumption with all the non-Christians in that room, and he shares an assumption with most Christians I've ever met. That the reason he was able to dismantle faith and dismantle Christianity is because the Christians, the non-Christians, and the people trying to figure it out all had a shared assumption about Christianity that is not true. And as I sat there watching this, I thought, somebody has to do something about this. And so about nine years ago, I changed the way I, I preached. I changed the way I talked about faith. There were words I quit using. I didn't change what I believed. I did not change what I believed about the Bible. But I thought, I am not gonna feed this false narrative anymore in my preaching and teaching. Then three years later, I started talking to church leaders about it. And then I started writing about it. And so I'm on a campaign to help this generation, your generation specifically, to view the Christian faith differently because it is amazing. And we have allowed skeptics, my generation, previous generations, have allowed skeptics to bait Christians into a conversation we should never be in because it is based on a false assumption. And here's the false assumption. So catch your breath after you read this. The false assumption is, this is not true, that the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith and that as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. This is what most Christians believe. This is what you were taught probably in Sunday school if you were raised in, in a Christian church or a conservative church. This is what I was taught. This is what I assumed growing up. This is not, don't leave early. <laughs> this is not true. Your faith, the foundation of your Christian faith is way better than whether or not a book is completely True. Let me read a couple of quotes from Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith. And again, this is, he just draws Christians into this debate they've been having, having for you know, a couple of centuries, really. He says this, you believe that the Bible is the most profound book ever written and that its contents have stood the test of time so well that it must have been divinely inspired. And all the Christians go, yes, that's what we believe. The idea that the Bible is a perfect guide to morality is simply astounding given the contents of the book. Then he goes into all these things where people are put to death and they're burned and they're stoned and you know women are treated horribly. He goes into all these things. And there's several more. I'm just gonna show you one more. If the Bible, because this is kind of the issue, if the Bible is an ordinary book and Christ an ordinary man, the basic doctrine of Christianity is false. If the Bible is an ordinary book and Christ an ordinary man, then the basic doctrine of Christianity is false. So he says, if it can be proven that there's not really much to the Bible, say goodbye to Christianity. In fact, in his book, he's so interesting, he's so honest, he says, look, 
if you're right, Christians, and I'm wrong, then when I die, I'm going to wake up to where I'm going to have a rude awakening because I'm going to hell. That's what you believe. All the Christians are like, yeah. And then he says, but if I'm right and you're wrong, you're basing your entire life and living and raising your kids based on a fairy tale. So he says, hey, the battle line is whether or not the Bible is true. In other words, if you undermine one part of the Bible, the whole thing comes tumbling down. If the Bible, if something in the Bible isn't true, well, then the Bible isn't true. So if your faith rests on the fact the Bible's true, the Bible's the word of God, the Bible's true, then when somebody shows you clearly, okay, this clearly can't be true, then you have to say, well, that part isn't true. That means the Bible isn't true. And if I can't trust some of it, can I trust any of it? And here's what's amazing. Even if you have been raised in faith, went on four mission trips through your stick in the fire, rededicated at camp, and after that really last, that last camp talk, remember the last camp talk in high school if you went to camp, and everybody's crying, and they're calling their parents and confessing things they should have never confessed. <laughs> the next day they woke up and they're like, I can't believe I told my mom that. I can't go home. I got all emotional at the last night at camp with that silly song, and I called my mom and told her all that stuff. She's gone through my whole room and found all my stuff. Life is over for me. I have to go live with someone else. So anyway, no matter how committed you've been to Christ and whatever decisions you make, let's face it, if somebody demonstrates you can't trust the Bible, then what happens to your Christian faith? But that is a false assumption, because whether or not the Bible is true is not the issue. And here's why I say that. Whether or not the Bible is true is not the issue of whether or not you should follow Jesus. And here's why I say that. Because the Bible, I'm going to come back to this at the end, the Bible did not create Christianity. There were tens of thousands of extraordinary and extraordinarily brave and thoughtful Christians before there was a the Bible. There was never a the Bible until the early fourth century, really the middle of the fourth century. Before anybody took what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul and the writing the Gospels together with the, New, the Old Testament put it together and called the Bible. That was hundreds of years later. And yet there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. In fact, Christianity got launched without any literature. Christianity got launched before anybody wrote anything about Jesus. How? Because the foundation of the Christian faith, the foundation of your faith, is not a perfect book. And I read the Bible every single day. I have to, I have to put, watch my clock or I'll just keep reading. I loved I love the text, but the good news is the foundation of your faith is something different. Now, the problem is, is people like me, preachers, the way we preach and talk about the Bible have established this assumption that we say, the Bible says, the word of God says, the Bible says, therefore you shouldn't. The Bible says, therefore you should. The Bible says, therefore you can't get divorced. The Bible says, therefore you can't, you should, you ought to give your money to the Bible, the Bible. And when you say that over and over and over, what it communicates is the Bible, the constitution, the handbook, the, hand, you know, the school policy manual, the, the, this written word is the ultimate authority. So over time, we have you know, a bunch of generations of Christians that assume that, hey, the foundation of our faith is the Bible. It leaves that impression. And then too many pastors, I, I think, unintentionally, have sort of taken the Bible, all the books of the Bible, and scooped them up out of their historical foundation and put them together. It's like they put them in a vase and just watered it, and they almost worship the Bible, it becomes, it becomes the central thing that stands alone from the historical context that it came from. So they treat it, they treat it, and they talk about it. I wrote in my notes as if it fell out of the sky, all chaptered, verse, mapped, and wrapped. I mean, that's how you got it as a kid, right? My first Bible was red, had my name printed on it in what color? Gold. 
How did we know that? It's what they did. It's royal. They gave me the whole thing. They said, it's all God's word. It's all, God, it's all true. You should read it and don't set your coffee cup on top of it when you start drinking coffee. Here it is, go, you know, the whole thing. Now, just a little side note. When Jesus gave his farewell address, he said something that we overlook. He told us what the ultimate authority of our lives should be. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, all authority, and the Greek word for all means all. It's not even tricky. All authority in heaven and earth belong to me. So this is not a trick question. So according to this verse, if Jesus said this, who did all authority on heaven and earth belong to? Who? Not a trick question. Yeah. Who is it? Jesus, yeah. So your ultimate authority is not a book. Your ultimate authority is a person. That's what we just sang about. It's a living person. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but that's in the Bible now, your circular reasoning, I'm so glad you're here tonight because it's not, but we're gonna keep moving. And my goal tonight is not to get you to change the way that you appreciate the Bible. I just wanna put the Bible in the proper context of your faith. And that brings me to this. Okay, so now I need you to put on your thinking cap. And if you're taking notes, I'm gonna put a screen up here in just a minute that I would prefer you take a picture of, maybe if you wanna talk about this later, because I don't know if you can write all this down fast enough. You may be super speedy. Um, one hand, thumbs, thumbs. Yeah, thumbs, good, all right. I'm just trying to be hip, okay. So this is what I wanna show you next. It's called the classical apologetic method, and you're gonna have to use your brains, but that's okay, you're students. And here's the thing, this is, this is the box for your faith. This is the context for your faith. This is the whole shoot and match in five statements. I'm gonna go through each of them quickly, and then I'm gonna talk about one more thing, and then we're gonna get you out of here. But I learned this about 35 years ago, and this is how, this has shaped my entire ministry. It shapes the way I read the Bible, teach the Bible, preach the Bible, and again, about eight years ago, it dawned on me, I need to start talking about this, because most Christians don't even know this, and this is the anchor for our faith. Here's the classical apologetic method. I'm gonna do this real quick. Um, it's five statements. First, it's God exists, and just so you know, Christians do not believe God exists because the Bible says so. Now, you may know some Christians who say, why do you believe God exists? Well, the Bible says so. Okay, thinking thoughtful Christians, and you're thinking thoughtful Christians, we don't just believe the Bible, that God exists because the Bible says so. That is kind of circular reasoning. So the first statement is God exists, and there are lots of proofs and evidence, obviously, you know, that God exists. Um, in fact, while, while we're on that, um, Shane, just stay right there. I'm gonna go to this next part of my notes. Um, the interesting thing now, when I was growing up, um, they first started teaching evolution in school and the Christians just fell apart. Like, oh my gosh, we can't have you know, evolution in schools because it's, it's God or evolution. It's the Bible or evolution. So I want to put your mind at ease. That's not true either. That, that's not true either. Um, yeah, Shane, just follow. Yeah, we'll just go back. I'm going to come back to a slide I'll show you in just a minute. So anyway, God exists. We'll come back. If God exists, then miracles are possible, Right? And then the third statement just leaps way into the future and changes subjects. And we're going to come back to this and explain why. God exists. If God exists, miracles are possible. Then the third thing that Christians ex believe is this, that the Gospels, not the whole Bible, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, that's what the Gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just those four first century documents that were eventually copied, collected, protected, and placed in our Bibles, just the Gospels. The Gospels are reliable accounts of actual events. 
that the Gospels are actual or reliable accounts of actual events, which means that when we read what Matthew says about Jesus did, what Mark says Jesus did, what Luke says Jesus did, what John says Jesus did, what Jesus taught, that we believe that these first century documents are reliable accounts of what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually did. And because all four of them say he rose from the dead, the, fifth, uh, the fourth point is, consequently, Jesus rose from the dead. Why do we believe that? Because... Four reliable historical documents say Jesus rose from the dead. And then the last statement is this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what Jesus said about anything he said anything about can be trusted. Now, back to this uh, God exists thing for just one second, and we're going to move on. I just want to let you know, for you biology majors and all you science majors, there is no, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, just want to create a, con, uh, a, a category if you don't have this category. There is no necessary conflict. There is no necessary conflict between the existence of God and macro, full-on, fully embraced evolution. There are many Jesus followers, many thoughtful Christians who believe that, natural, that evolution by natural selection is how God might have done it. Then there are a lot of very thoughtful, smart Christians who don't think that's true. They believe um, that, that basically that God created the heavens and earth in somewhat of the form and somewhat of the, uh, sort of the, uh, the pattern that we find in Genesis, but they aren't six literal days. And this is called, as most of you know, intelligent design. So there are thoughtful Christians that think God is intelligent design theory. Some thoughtful Christians believe macroevolution. And some Christians believe it was one 24-hour day, two 24-hour days, six 24-hour days, and he was done. But here's what I want you to understand and believe. If you're ever tempted to leave Christianity over the book of Genesis, that evolution, do I have this slide? Yes, that the conflict is between, the conflict is between, this is so important, the conflict is between atheism and theism. The conflict is not between evolution and theism. Let me throw this slide up here and we'll move on. Atheism is a worldview. Evolution is a scientific theory. They're not even in the same category. These are not necessarily, that's why I use the word necessarily, these are not necessarily in conflict with each other. When I was coming along, it was presented as if, no, it's one or the other, and now very thoughtful. I mean, the guy that mapped the human genome. The reason you didn't go, is we don't even know what that means, okay? But somebody mapped the human genome. That means, anyway, Francis Collins, he's an evangelical Christian, believes, believes evolution is the way that God did it. In fact, the easiest way to marry your faith and your science is simply this. Science just tells us how he did it. There's no conflict. In other words, let me use it this way. You see, if you understood everything about how this phone was manufactured, you would not conclude no one manufactured it. Understanding how it came together does not, ne- does not necessarily correlate to nobody put it together. Put it a different way. Knowing how to change a flat tire does not change the flat tire. There is a means and there is an agent Christians believe, and I'm not trying to argue for the, these aren't proofs for the existence of God. We're not even talking about that. Christians believe that when it comes to creation, when it comes to what we see around us, the material world, that there was an agent. Atheists think there were no agent. That's the conflict. If there's an agent, there's a means the agent used. It might have been evolution, might have been microevolution, might have been intelligent design, might have been six days. That's a different topic for a different day. All my point is, my point is simply this. 
Christians, thoughtful Christians don't believe the, that God exists simply because the Bible says so. Okay, so back to our, our framework. I'm gonna move along. God exists, miracles are possible. Lots of it, there's lots of, you know, books written on whether or not God exists, but if he exists, miracles are possible. Then, this is the interesting part. We jump all the way down, not to the Bible, not the Bible says the Bible is true. We drop down to the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Christianity, and here's the bottom line in case you leave earlier, the electricity goes out. The bottom line is this, that Christianity rises and falls not on whether the whole Bible is true. Christianity rises and falls on whether or not the gospels are reliable accounts of actual events. And this is why if you've ever heard me preach very much, you will hear me say at some point, if somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should go with whatever that person says. That is the foundation of your faith. Christianity did not start in Genesis. Christianity began on the very first Easter when Jesus' tomb was found empty. They thought somebody stole the body. Then they thought, why would anybody steal the body? And then they realized that nobody stole the body, that he was alive. He was seen by eyewitnesses. And the church began before anything was ever written down about it. If someone can predict their own death and resurrection. In fact, when my kids were going off to college, they all went to secular um, universities. Um, I said, hey, if this, you know, whatever class, if this ever comes up about your faith in the Old Testament, what about those crazy things in the Old Testament? Look, don't, don't get in a spitting match. You know, all you got to say is, is simply this. You know what? Jesus, Jesus taught that, or Jesus seemed to believe that, or Jesus affirmed that in the Old Testament. And you know what? I'm a simple person. If somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, pull it off, I just go with whatever they say. In other words, you pull, that, you pull that conversation to the very issue of Christianity, which is not, is everything in the Bible true? It's, are the gospel, you know, actual, uh, reliable uh, accounts of um, actual events? And if that's the case, then Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. So back to our statement real quick. Christianity began with the event of the resurrection. In fact, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written not because people were just curious about a Jewish rabbi who was crucified by Rome. There were lots of those. The only reason anybody wrote the account of Jesus' life, it wasn't his miracles either. The reason they wrote the account of Jesus' life and the reason many people wrote an account of Jesus' life was because of the event of the resurrection. The gospels were written because Jesus rose from the dead. So what this doesn't say, and here's what I want you to understand and see, Nowhere in this argument does anybody say the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, the Bible is true, the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. All of that may be true, but it's not central to why you should follow Jesus for the rest of your life. So the moral of the story is this, that the foundation of our faith is an event. It's not a book. Now, at this point, if you're following and you're following because you're tracking along, you're, you're super quiet or you don't look asleep anyway, Here's what somebody's thinking, and I hope you're thinking this. You're thinking this. But Andy, you are actually quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. You're quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. That's just circular reason. The Bible is how we know about the resurrection. So you're saying the resurrection happened, the resurrection happened, and the only reason we know the resurrection happened is because that's in the Bible. So it's, it's just circular reasoning, and this is foolish. Actually, it's not. And here's why I say that. Most of us, me included, most of us were taught that we should believe what is in the Bible, ready for this, because it's in the Bible. Most of us were taught the reason you should believe that's true, why should I believe that's true? It's in the Bible. Now that is actually 
um, circular reasoning. I, and I can prove it this way. If you were to ask, go home and, you know, ask your mom or your grandmother or your aunt or your uncle or some Christian, you know, back home at church or, or, you know, some older person, if you would say, hey, you know, Uncle Frank, do you believe, that, if he's a Christian, did you believe, or maybe you have a relative who's a pastor, start with a pastor. Say, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead? And your Christian uncle or friend or relative would say, yes, I do. And you say, well, why do you believe that? And he or she is most likely going to say, because that's what the Bible says. And that is the wrong answer. And I hope you never, ever, 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 ever use that answer again, because there is a much better answer. We do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us so. Let me ask you a question to to frame this out. This is not a trick question, okay? I promise, no trick questions. I'll let you know if it's a trick. Do you put things in a safe to make them valuable, or do you put things in a safe because they're valuable? Let me ask that again. Do you put things... You've already got a good answer, right? What was the answer? What? Because they're valuable, that's right. You go to a hotel, you got your, you know, your bling and your watch and your stuff and your iPad and your phone. It's like, it's kind of a sketchy area of town. Oh, there's a safe and there's, I can't barely understand the instructions, but apparently I can put stuff in here and lock it. Nobody but the housekeeper can probably, I'm sure he or she's a safe person. Anyway, so when you decide what to put in the hotel safe, you, do, you put stuff in there that you already consider valuable. Now, this is what's so important. You ready? If you weren't paying attention, tune back in, okay? We... Do not take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's all we're talking about. We do not take the Gospels seriously because they are in the Bible. The Bible's like a safe. The reason that we take them seriously and the reason that, the reason, well, the next slide says, these documents, let me just stick with my notes, these documents were collected and protected and included in the Bible because early Christians understood their value. In other words, when, imagine you're a first century Christian and Peter has come to your town and told you this amazing thing that's happened, you know, a hundred miles away. And then later on, somebody brings you a letter and said, Peter wrote us a letter. What are you going to do with that? Read it once and throw it away. And it's like, oh my gosh, we have a letter from someone who spent three years with Jesus. Can I touch it? No, you can't touch my letter. Okay, you can copy it, but I'm holding it. I'm holding it, okay? And make sure you get this right. This is important. That these documents where people gave risk and, and lost their lives, especially in the early, early, early fourth century, protecting these documents, they aren't valuable. They are not believable because they're in the Bible. They are believable because of who wrote them and when they were written. That's why we believe what we believe. So um, the Bible's not how we know about the resurrection. The way we know about the resurrection is because of the people that were closest to the event of the resurrection. So here's how we know about the resurrection. And I'll hit these pretty quickly. We know about the resurrection because of Matthew, not the Bible. Matthew was one of Jesus' followers. He wrote his, the whole story of Jesus as he could remember it or based on the people he talked to and what he could remember, and it's called the Gospel of Matthew. Mark, he got his information from Peter, an eyewitness and someone who spent time this whole time with Jesus. Peter probably couldn't read or write that well, so he dictated his story to a Greek named Mark. Luke said, I thoroughly investigated everything and talked to everybody I could talk to and put together an orderly account. We know about the resurrection because of John, follower of Jesus. We know about the resurrection because of Peter. He wrote two letters where he clearly believes Jesus literally rose from the dead. And this is my favorite. We know about the resurrection because of James. James had a famous brother. Anybody know who James' famous brother was? Jesus, right. Okay, James, check it out. The brother of Jesus believed his brother was his Lord. Let me just ask you a quick question. 
what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God and that you should pray to him? Exactly. Ain't no what? Ain't no way, right? Get this, check this out. James, if you have a New Testament, do you know this is amazing? You should go home tonight and read this or maybe in your group, decide to read. We, you have a letter in your Bible, in your New Testament, written by the brother of Jesus. And throughout Jesus' ministry, James is nowhere to be found. They think he thinks his brother's crazy. And after the resurrection, James shows up and he is a leader in the church and not just any church, he is a leader in the church in Jerusalem where these events took place. When someone says, I don't know, we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible, this, the Bible. Hey, forget the Bible. I got a question to ask you. What would your brother have to do to convince you he's the son of God? Oh, that's just stupid. Did you know that the brother of Jesus believed his brother was Lord? Hey, this isn't in the Bible. It happened after the Bible was written, the New Testament was written. James, the brother of Jesus, was actually stoned by, a, by a, the high priest. And he did it illegally because he hated James. In fact, he lost his job because he stoned James. James was known as James the Just. And when he breathed his last breath, think of this. He breathed his last breath convinced his brother was his savior. See, that's way better than the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, hadn't said anything when these things were written. And then the apostle Paul, who hated Christians, you know his story, hated Christians, became one. Went around planting churches all over the Mediterranean Rim. Absolutely convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, Paul gives us the earliest statement in the first century about believing that Jesus rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, an early letter he wrote just about 20 years after the resurrection, he quotes a song that the church was already singing about the resurrection. So it pushes the date of the, of the people documenting the resurrection so close to the events. Your faith is real. Your faith is rooted. It's not rooted in faith. Your faith is rooted in something that happened. And if you walk away from faith because it's inconvenient, I'm so sorry. I think you're going to be sorry as well. But don't you dare walk away from faith because you don't think there's something to it, my friends. <laughs> the brother of Jesus. Come on. It don't get any better than that, right? And then if I had time, there's other things. How do, you, how do you explain the survival of the church? Then my favorite thing, because nobody talks about it, makes it my favorite thing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. And in the year 70 AD, Rome tore the temple down. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospels, it's so dramatic. He said, not one stone will be left on another. Okay, And everybody who heard him went... Okay, that's hyperbole. Okay, Herod built this temple. Some of these stones, they didn't use this language, but we know now because we found the stones. The stones weighed 200 tons. These stones were as big as the size, I mean, single stones. We still aren't even sure how they got them up there. This building wasn't going away. There were a lot of earthquakes. They made the temple earthquake proof. And Jesus said, oh yeah, the whole thing, it's a tear down. The whole thing's gonna come tumbling down. Not one stone will be left on another. And they're listening to Jesus going, okay, there's no power on the planet that could do that unless... I mean, maybe an army. Jesus is crucified and goes, sends to be the father around 30 or 32 AD in the year 70 AD under Titus. The Roman 10th Legion punched through the outer wall, the inner wall of the city of Jerusalem. They were so mad at the Jews because they'd been out in the hot sun month after month after month keeping that city under siege. Titus ordered that every single stone of the temple be torn down and shoved off the plateau that the temple was built on. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to the Temple Mount and you can see the stones in the valley they shoved off the platform that the temple was built on. 
Jesus predicted this about 40 years, about 30 years before 40, 30, 40, yes, about 40 years before this happened. You have to explain that away. This is not the Bible says, this is way better than that. So if you're super interested in that, um, I want to just recommend a book real quick. It's called Can Can We Trust the Gospels? It's a brand new book. That's why I'm recommending it. I love this book. It's a short book and it goes into all kinds of details about whether or not the gospels can be trusted because this is the issue for you as a Christian, not is the Bible true. It's are the gospels historically reliable events about actual events. They may want to check that out. So wrapping up, we don't know about the resurrection because of the Bible. We have the Bible because of the resurrection. That's why the gospels were written. That's why Christians wrote letters. And that's why they eventually combined it with the Old Testament scripture. Another way to think about it is this, not a trick question. Which comes first, the birth or the birth certificate? Maybe you don't know, let me tell you. (laughs) Ain't no certificate till there's a birth. Our wonderful text that I read every day is a birth certificate. The reason we have it is because something was birthed, the church. When Jesus came out of the tomb, it all started and somebody needed to document it. And that's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. The resurrection of Jesus birthed Christianity and the gospels documented that birth. This is why I said at the very beginning, the Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus um, created Christianity. And this is why, and I'm done, look up here. This is why your faith is not a waste of time. Your faith is not in vain. You are not believing a fairy tale. You're not just taking what mama and daddy and grandma and granddaddy taught you and hauling it into adulthood and trying to make it work. This is for real. This is why the church has survived. This is why it spread all around the world. This is why folks like Matt and Beth and your team and your small group leaders are here because it's changed their lives as emerging adults and as adults. And they just don't want you to miss it. And if you choose not to follow Jesus because it's inconvenient, I totally understand it. I hope you don't. But if you choose not to follow Jesus because it's inconvenient, 10 years from now or 15 years from now when you come back, and when you turn back in this direction, I've got some great news. You're not coming back to a fairy tale. You're not coming back to the faith that you were taught in Sunday school. You're coming back to a living, breathing reality of Jesus who punctuated everything he said about your ability to call God your heavenly, perfect father. Everything he said about the fact that life isn't bookended by a birth certificate and a death certificate, that there's life beyond this life. It is true, and when you come back, you're coming back to something real, not because the Bible says, but because the gospels say that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So I hope you never leave. If you've left, I hope you'll come back. And if you choose to leave, the good news is, Your heavenly father will take you back. Let me pray for you. We'll take off. Actually, we're going to sing another very, very cool song that I love. I don't know if you've heard this song. I just heard it for the first time last week. I heard it last week in Athens. I was in Athens teaching college students, and they cannot sing near as well as y'all. Okay. (laughs) Heavenly father, thank you so much. My goodness, thank you so much that the songs we sang a few minutes ago, we weren't singing into the air We were singing to a resurrected Christ. Father, for the young men and the young women in this room who have made some really difficult decisions in order to follow you, they've lost friends, they've lost the respect of professors, they've lost the respect maybe of family members, they've lost opportunities, they've lost dates, they've lost relationships, and they wonder, is this this crazy? I pray they'd leave here tonight with a faith that's so confident, so firm, 
that it would send them into their, the rest of their life following Jesus. So just do what you need to do. And I pray that if we're, we could all just be sheep for a minute, that you wouldn't lose any of us sheep. We don't want to be lost. But if we get lost, we know you'll come for us. And that's great as well. In Jesus' name, amen.